Thank you very much. Do you hear me well? Good. So I want to, first of all, I would like to thank those people who made possible this meeting with you today. It's a great honor for me to be here. It's also a great honor because I am not used to have a Christian audience. I'm used to teach to secular audiences, and I cannot say everything. But today with you, I think I, could, I can open my heart and tell you everything, all that is included in my book. I will say a few words about where I'm coming from and how I came to this idea of virtuous leadership. Well, I was born in France from, uh, well, my grandparents, who are two of my grandparents are Russian. They moved from uh, Russia in the 1920s during the Bolshevik Revolution. They escaped to Paris. I have a grandfather who is Georgian from the Caucasus. And I have a French grandmother, the son of a French general. So I was brought up in a very international atmosphere, culture. I studied law at Paris University. I worked as a lawyer for a few years in Paris, in Strasbourg. And uh, when I was 27, I moved to Helsinki, Finland. And I worked in Finland for 18 years. At the beginning, I worked as a lawyer, which was my profession. And one day, a friend of mine invited me to give classes on European integration, history of European integration, at the University of Helsinki. And I began to speak with my students of the great founders of European Union. Probably you know about those people, Robert Schumann, Alcide de Gasperi, Konrad Adenauer, Jean Monnet. And I used to speak about those people, and I noticed that my students were much more interested in human beings than in European regulations. They were amazed. They were amazed by these interesting founders of European Union. Remember, they were Christians. Almost, almost all of them were deep Christians, real Christians. What European Union has become today is another, is another topic for discussion. But what it was at the beginning, it was clearly a very Christian project. And the people who built the European Union were people with character, people with ideals. They were real Christian leaders. And then I noticed that the students are very interested by this topic and that they want to know more about these people. And the fundamental question that they asked me was, how do you become like these people? And of course, this is not a topic for lawyers. It's a topic for philosophers, for men and women of action. So with, with time, I decided to quit with my profession of a lawyer. I decided to stop practicing law and to dedicate my, my life learning and teaching this new topic that is virtuous leadership. I began to gather material to think about what is real leadership, material in different languages. I began to write, I began to think, and I began to teach, teach to my students, group of students, teach to directors of schools, professors, management, top management in Finland, in the Baltic countries, in Northern Europe, in France, in Russia. And I saw that everywhere there was a, it has big impact. People were looking for this truth about what is a human being, what is the meaning of life. Because in the end of the day, what my students were expecting from me was what is in fact the meaning of life. Comparing their own lives to those great founders of the European Union, they understood that a lot of things has to be done. They have to work on their personalities. 
And very quickly, I came to the conclusion that this topic that has to be taught to them is not just leadership. Because when you ask people what leadership is about, you will find that everybody, each one of us, can have his own definition of leadership. If you have a materialistically, if you are materialistically minded, for you, leadership can be just manipulation of people, how to direct people, or how to manipulate them, how to achieve a goal with others. Whatever it is, I came to the conclusion that real leadership is a question of character, and it has to do with virtues. So I came back to Aristotelian ethics. I came back to the concept of virtue, the, the idea of character. I discovered that human beings have in their personality two, two different aspects. A biological aspect that we call temperament, and a more spiritual aspect that we call character. A temperament is something given by nature, something we got through biology, through genetics. Each of us has his own temperament. You have shy personalities, you have hot-blooded people, you have introvert people, extrovert, whatever it is. You have a biology. And this biology is very important, but it's not all. The most important thing in our lives is, and not as his character. Character is the second nature that you build on the foundation of temperament. And this second nature is called character. Character in Greek means a seal. A seal that is stamped on your temperament so that your temperament stop dominating your personality. And character is made up of a lot of virtues. Virtues are the substance of character. So I had to investigate a bit those virtues. What are they? And all of us here remember that we, we've learned in school that there are four fundamental virtues that the ancient Greeks were used to speak about. 3,000 years we've been speaking about the four fundamental virtues of character. Remember them. Prudence or practical wisdom, courage or fortitude, temperance or self-control, and justice. And I thought about those fundamental virtues and I discovered that these four fundamental virtues are real dynamic forces. Because the word, the, the word virtus in Latin means in fact power, strength, energy. So these virtues are strength, dynamic forces that give you the capacity to do certain things. If you don't have them, there are certain things you cannot do. If you have prudence or practical wisdom, you can do certain things. You can make right decisions. You have the capacity to seize the situation and to understand what has to be done and to make a decision that is appropriate to this, to, to this situation. So you become a real decision maker. You can make right decisions almost all the time if you possess the virtue of prudence. If you have the virtue of courage, then you can stick to your decisions, you can implement them, you can stay the course even when the goings get, stuck, get, stuck, get tough. You can go on with your decision, you can impl implement it. So it's a strength that we see in human beings. Courage is a strength that gives you the capacity to implement the decisions you have, you have taken, you have made. And then you need also self-control or temperance, which is the capacity, in fact, to direct your passions and emotions towards the fulfillment of your mission in life. Self-control is not just about, it's not about destruction of passions and emotions, it's about direction to those passions and emotions. So it's a strength, it's a real strength that is, that we develop through education of our own character when we work on our own personalities. And then justice, you remember it's the virtue of interaction, it is the virtue of human beings, human beings being social beings, not only personal beings. It is the virtue of interaction, and in this virtue of justice are rooted all those great virtues as truthfulness, the capacity to speak the truth, sincerity, 
simplicity, empathy, friendship, all those great virtues that have that deal with uh, interactions with human beings. And if you have this capacity that is called justice, you have the possibility to enter the mind and the spirit and the heart of other people. And for leadership, this is very important. But then I thought about, yes, of course, if you have those four virtues, what happens? You become a good human being. You're a good person if you have the fundamental virtues. If you're lacking one of those virtues, everything collapses in your life. If you lack prudence, you cannot make the right decisions. You're lost. You have no orientation. You don't know how to behave. You can have theoretical knowledge, a PhD or an MBA, whatever it is. But if you are not prudent, you cannot apply this to concrete situation in life, and everything collapses in your own life. If you lack courage, well, you can make the right decisions, but you cannot implement them in reality. You cannot walk the talk, as we say here in America. So if you cannot walk the talk, people will laugh at you. If you lack a virtue of self-control, what happens? People will laugh at you even more because you look like an animal. You don't look like a human being if you have no control of your passions and emotions. And if you lack justice, you better stay home. You better stay home because you cannot interact with human beings. You cannot give people what is due to them. You cannot respect them. You cannot love them. You cannot practice friendship, empathy. You just cannot love people if you don't have justice. So then I had to think a little bit more and think, well, those four fundamental virtues are very important in the life of a leader, but they are, in fact, very important in the life of every individual. Each of us, even if he... He thinks he's not a leader. He needs those virtues in order to be a real human being, to be a good person, and to be able to do certain things in life. But then I studied a little bit the life of real leaders, and I discovered that none of those four fundamental virtues are, in fact, specific leadership virtues. They are the virtues of good people. So a leader has to be a good man or a good woman. If not, as I have told you, everything collapses in his life. You can't be a leader if you are not a good human being. If you are not a good human being, what you will do, you will manipulate people. Because if you don't have those fundamental virtues, at least an important level of fundamental virtue in you, you cannot lead through character. So you will have to lead through skills. You will buy books on psychology to learn how to interact with people without being really yourself who you are because you're nothing. You don't have virtues, you're nothing. So you have to find instruments. You have to find tools to direct people. But tools that are not what you are. Skills, techniques of directing people. As the Romans were used to say, there are two different kinds of power. There is the famous, famous auctoritas, authority. The power that stems from character. That is an informal power that we have. And there is the famous potestas, which is the formal power that you have. So if you don't have autoritas, authority, then you lead through direct power, potestas. So I came to the conclusion that we had to investigate more this problem of leadership. Those fundamental virtues that we call cardinal virtues, because they are fundamental, they are the hinges. And I had to go on with my investigation. And then I came to the conclusion, looking really at the life of real leaders, that the fundamental specific virtue of leaders, the first, I would say, fundamental and specific virtue of leaders is called magnanimity. 
It's a word we have not we've forgotten, but it's a word that has more, more or less 3,000 years of history. What is a magnanimous person? Well, Aristotle was the first to scientifically define this word. There is a Greek word called megalopsychia. Megalopsychia is the first fundamental word, the origin of the word magnanimity. Megalopsychia means big soul. And do you remember what he writes about megalopsychia? For him, a magnanimous man, as he writes in his ethics, is a man that considers himself worthy of great things. So it is the virtue that is hidden behind greatness. Very often people speak about greatness. You write the word greatness in the internet, you have millions of stuff. But very few people know that the true greatness is the greatness that stems from a very specific virtue that is a habit of character, not an emotion, not um, a feeling. And that this virtue is, is called magnanimity. It has to do with a vision, awareness, I would say, awareness of our own dignity and greatness as human persons. This is the first discovery. Leaders are people who have a vision of themselves, a true vision of what a human being is. If you see, if you consider yourself as a vegetable, as an animal, then it's very difficult to have a vision of magnanimity because you're not aware of your own dignity and your own greatness. You don't understand what this is. And the first thing we really see in leaders, it is this vision of an exalted, an exalted vision of the vocation of man and woman. The big picture of self, before having a, I would say, a big vision of what he wants to do, or what he has to do, what he's called to do. The leader is a person that, first of all, has a big vision of what he is. Awareness of your own dignity and greatness. I went on a little bit studying this concept of magnanimity and I saw that Thomas Aquinas had spoken a lot about this beautiful virtue of magnanimity. And Aristotle was saying that a magnanimous man is the one who considers himself worth, worthy of great things. And Thomas added one word here. A magnanimous person is a person who considers himself worthy of doing great things. A big difference. The difference is quite simple. In fact, that Aristotle was living in a world in which he didn't know that this world was created by God. So for him, the world was evil, fate. So for him, a magnanimous person was a person that was declaring his independence from the world, Socrates. Socrates was for him the model of a magnanimous man. The one that is completely independent from the word autonomous, that doesn't care what happens in the world. He has virtue, he is happy with that, and he shows the world that he's independent. He doesn't care if the, if the crowd, the mob, wants to kill him or destroy him. He doesn't care for the mob. Thomas is a Christian. He knows that the world is good. The world comes from God. It's a creation of God. It's good. So he says a magnanimous person is a person that wants to conquer the world. Do you understand that? To conquer holiness and conquer the, the world for Christ. So magnanimity is action. It's not only 
uh, awareness of your own dignity and greatness. It is also awareness of the fact that you have to do great things in life. You're called to do great things. This way for him, magnanimity is the virtue of action. It is a virtue of human hope. And here, because we have here a public Christian, a public uh, a Christian audience, we have to make a very specific distinction between human hope and supernatural hope. These are very different things. It's a key, there is a key distinction here has to be made. Supernatural hope, it is when St. Paul tells us, I can do everything in the one that makes me strong. Do you remember this word of St. Paul? It means that it's hope in God. It's hope that God will help you do the stuff he's expecting from you. This is what we call supernatural hope. What is human hope? Because Thomas is reading Aristotle, a true translation of Aristotle. So he says that Aristotle speaks about magnanimity, and he knows that Aristotle is not a Christian, no idea about what supernatural hope. So he says magnanimity, guys, has nothing to do with supernatural hope. Because Aristotle had no idea that there is something like a supernature. He says that magnanimity is the virtue of human hope. And what is this human hope? That's a great question. Human hope is based on the foundation of a very simple fact that all of us, we have talents and gifts. And that those talents and gifts, which are not the supernatural gifts, it's not the gifts of grace, they are natural gifts, are all those good things that we have received through nature, through education, that are very natural and very human in us. And that many people have, even if they are no Christian. And he says, magnanimity looks at those gifts, not the supernatural ones, but those very specific gifts and talents that we have received from God, that are not supernatural, that are purely human, it is awareness of those talents and gifts and the capacity to multiply them and the trust in yourself. So here many Christians say, well, stop here, stop here. Trust in yourself, what's that? I have been taught that I have to trust in God. And now you tell me I have to trust in myself. And Thomas tells us a very simple thing. He says that, by trusting yourself, what are you doing? You're trusting God. Because God is the one who has given you those gifts, those talents that you have. So there is no conflict between magnanimity and humility. Magnanimity is awareness of all the great things, the human things that you have received from God. And humility is the recognition that these gifts that you have have been granted to you by God. So if, if you think that you have great talents and great gifts, but you do not understand that these things were given to you by God, then you are not magnanimous. You are proud or megalomaniacal. But if you understand that those gifts and talents that you have have been given to you by God, what are you going to do? you are going to investigate more about your gifts and talents. And you are going to multiply them. And you will be, f you will, you will be filled with gratitude 
to God. And he says to us a very simple thing. Not to be aware about our gifts, not to acknowledge our gifts and talents on the human level. He says this is not humility. This is ingratitude. So he was, Thomas was the first to show very well the difference between humility and false humility. And he understood that there was here a certain conflict in the mind of certain people. And that's why with time, many people, in the, many Christians didn't understand this distinction between magnanimity and humility. Didn't understand that they fit together and they go hand in hand. And the way we've been taught humility very often, we understand this humility we've been taught very often is exclusive of magnanimity. That's why very often people teach humility, but they forget, they don't speak enough about magnanimity. And then the humility they have in mind is not true humility. It is a humility without magnanimity, which means it's not the truth. Humility is the habit of living in the truth. And the truth is that you have talents and gifts. And then you have to be aware of that. And you have to investigate that. If you're not aware of your talents and gifts on the human level, then you cannot be magnanimous and you cannot be humble. So humility and magnanimity always go hand in hand and we must never separate one from another. And this is a very important distinction because leadership is based fundamentally on the virtue of magnanimity. A leader is someone who is very much aware of his own dignity and greatness and someone who is aware of his own talents and want to multiply them. That's why we have leaders outside Christianity. We have leaders outside Christianity, people who are very magnanimous. We find them very often outside Christianity. Leadership is not a typically Christian stuff. It is a human activity, which means that people with human virtues can practice leadership at the highest level. Because the fundamental and specific virtue of leadership is magnanimity. It is awareness of your gifts and talents, sense of responsibility, capacity to multiply this gift to make a difference, the capacity, the sense of mission in life. There is a difference between, I would say, what we call vocation and mission. What is a vocation? A vocation is something very spiritual, very religious in terms of it is a plan that God has for each and every individual. It's a project of God for each and every person. A vocation has to do with our own being. Who are we? What God wants us to be or to become? It's a way of thinking, a way of behaving. But mission is something more specific. It is the specific thing that you think you are called to do. When you are aware of your own capacities of action, your own gifts and talents bring you to a sense of mission. I have this capacity, I have this gift, I have to multiply it, and I feel that I have to do that thing. It's more human than a vocation, but it is a substance, I would say, of leadership. Sense of mission. Many people have a sense of vocation because they are very religious people. They pray, they receive the sacraments, and they understand what's God's plan for them. And they say, I have a vocation, I see it, I will follow it. It's my way of being, it's me. It's the project of God for me. But few people have a sense of mission. 
because a sense of vocation is a great thing, but it's not, it's not everything. The sense of mission comes from awareness, I repeat, of your own talents and gifts. Then you see from this what you have called to do. And there are many human things here that enter into considerations. You have, of course, religious, religious missions, like John of Arc. But you have many missions that are not religious, but are very good. And God also wants them. But he wants you to investigate what is your own mission. He wants you to use your mind, to use your heart, to use your intelligence, to, to practice this virtue of magnanimity that will bring you to the conclusion, this is a specific thing I have to do in my life. It's a mission. And I will focus on that. I will put all my efforts and my energy in that thing. That's why we have people who are very spiritual. They have a sense of vocation, but they have no sense of mission because they are lacking magnanimity. And we have people who are not religious very often, and they have a sense of mission, but they have no sense of vocation at all. It's also a problem because, in fact, a mission, I mean, a vocation without a mission is a good thing, but then you are not going to do the great thing you are expected to do. But a, a, a mission without a vocation has no frame for action. You feel you have to do certain things, or a certain thing, but you don't find the real meaning of all that. And the vocation is, in fact, what gives people the real meaning of their own actions, and also the meaning of your mission. So the sense of mission is a lot to do with, uh, with, uh, with what we're speaking now about leadership. Magnanimity is a virtue of action. It's a virtue of human hope. It has to do with sense of mission, the capacity to set to yourself and to the others very high goals in life. And this is the first thing, the first specific, I would say, virtue that we say in leaders. But then you see this is not enough. Greatness, you feel it's something natural, you're called to. But in leadership, you understand this is not enough. Leadership is about being with other people. It's about bringing people to some, towards something. So it is also about developing greatness in the others. And this is the second virtue we need to speak about in leadership. It is a specific second specific virtue of leaders, that is humility. I will say it is a very specific aspect of humility that we call fraternal humility. Service. So you have greatness and service. How do you serve in leadership? In leadership, you serve by bringing out greatness in the others. So in the end of the day, what is leadership? Leadership is achieving greatness by bringing out greatness in the others. When you've said this, you said what leadership is about, and you've spoken about the two specific virtues of leadership magnanimity and humility. I want to give you a very nice example. I heard, uh, probably all of us have heard about the, the famous Michelin company, the tires. You know those people, yeah? Uh, two years ago, I met with uh, Francois Michelin, who was the, the grandson of uh, Edouard Michelin, Michelin, we say in English, excuse me, who was the founder of Michelin. And he told me a very nice story. I asked him, tell me the story of your company. How what have you done to become the number one in the tire industry in the world? And he told me the story of the company, a beautiful story that it can explain us, show us very clearly what leadership is about. He told me my grandfather, Edward, was a businessman. He was an engineer. And he was also 
a very good philosopher. He created that company, Michelin, before the First World War. And one day, between the two wars, a man called Marius Mignol knocked at the door and said, hey guys, I would like to work with you. I like your company. And the chief of staff asked him, okay, what can you do? Do you have a degree? No, no degree. No formal education. But I have worked during two years in the, in the printing industry. So there are certain stuff I know how to do. The chief of staff said, let's say to him, okay, okay, we have a place there in the printing department of Michelin. We're going to send you there. They sent him there, and after a few weeks or a few months, the chief of the organization, Edouard Michelin, heard about that, and he called immediately the chief of staff, and he told him, are you crazy? You've sent to the printing department a place where there is not much to be done there, a man, we don't know who he is, and he even doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know his talent, his capacities. You just send him there because he has no formal education. You're crazy. Remember, you have to break the stone in order to get the diamond that is hidden inside that stone. Break the guy. Send him to the import expert department, commercial department. There, we will discover what this guy, who he is, what is he capable of. We will know his talents, possibilities, and then after, we will make a decision where he has to work. After a few weeks, uh, Edouard Michelin came down in the department, export import department, looked at the people around. He saw this guy, Marius Mignol, and he saw on the table of this man a ruler. This man had invented something in order to convert the, the currencies, because he was dealing with import-expert, to convert very quickly those currencies. Edouard Michelin, as an engineer, he looked at that stuff, and he said, this guy is a genius. He has nothing to do here. Send him to the research department. They send to the research department a guy that has no formal education. His colleagues were mathematicians, of the highest level, the most prestigious school in France, Ecole Polytechnique. He had no formal education. Probably he didn't know that two plus two is four. They sent him there. The problem at that time was very simple. Cars were going faster and faster, but the tires were getting warmer and warmer. And it was very dangerous to drive cars at high speed because the tires were not ready for that. So it was, it was a big challenge for the industry of the tire. How do you stop the process of heating of tires at high speed? And those mathematicians were working on that years and years and didn't find a way to get out of that. And this simple man, Marius Mignol, with his gifts, with his talents, his capacity of observation, passion for the tire, without any formal education, after a few years, discovered the famous radial tire. He discovered that if you put inside a tire wires that are not parallel but radial, this will stop the process of heating of the tires at high speed. Something you cannot come to this conclusion by mathematics. You can come only by observation, experimentation, intuition, and a strong passion for the tire. This changed the whole industry of tires all over the world. The radial tire was a revolution. All the industry of tires changed because of that man, a simple man. So the question is, 
How do you produce Marius Mignol? How do you make such a thing that a man who is on a former education comes to discover his own talent, his own gifts, put those gifts at the service of the community, of the country, and the whole world? And Michelin told me, this is our corporate culture. This is the way we serve people. We serve our own people by helping them identifying their talents and gifts so that they can themselves achieve greatness and help the company and the whole country to achieve the common good. This is what we can say an example of what humility is in leadership. You have here both things, humility and greatness. You have ex an example of what leadership is about. Leadership is about people. It's not about things. Michelin told me, you know, my grandfather was convinced that what is more important, the most important thing in an organization, even a business organization, it's not the money. It's not the machinery. People. If you focus on people, you will develop them, you will lead them, and you will have also great results in terms of business, great profits. But you never look at the profits, you look at the people. This is a way to serve them. And he served by helping this man to discover his own talents and gifts. And the whole corporate culture of this institution is very simple. When you go to Michelin and say, I want to work for you, they say, okay, good. We are going to do with you what we did with Marcel Mignol, with Marius Mignol. We are going to put you in a situation where you are going to get to know yourself well, where you are going to get to know your talents. And we also are going to get to know your talents. And in the end of the day, you will be in the place where you have to be in order to achieve your personal greatness and help all the community to achieve its goal. So if you come to Michelin and say, oh, tell me what's going to happen to me in five years. I have a Harvard degree. They will tell him, Harvard degree? Very good. Mignol had no degree. We're going to put you and test you. We're going to do with you the same thing as we did with Marcel Mignol, with Marius Mignol, excuse me. We're going to put you in different situations. We're going to see who you are. We're going to get to know your talents. You will be great, and we will be great with you. No career development. We don't know what's going to happen to you in five years. Everything depends on your talents and your gifts. And you will be, in the end of the day, in two or three years, in the very place you have to be in order to achieve yourself personal greatness and help the company develop and help the whole country and serve all of humanity. This is a very nice example of what leadership is about, to achieve greatness by bringing out the greatness in the others. This is the definition of what leadership is about. And you see at that point of our reflections that in the end of the day, leaders have always a mentality, I would say, of teachers, a mentality of parents. Leadership is not about being the boss. The media use the word leaders all the time, but they don't know what they're speaking about. If I ask you, is this guy a leader for you? You will say no. So why the media says our leaders? Very often, we, the media has in mind our bosses, not our leaders. Leadership is not a position. It is not a position. It is a way of being. In many organizations, you have great leaders at different levels. And very often, the boss is not a leader at all. It's just a manager. Because he has not this mentality of teacher 
this mentality of parent, this mentality of serving people, helping them, achieving greatness. So we see at that level that leadership, in fact, is for everybody. It does not depend at all on the stuff you're doing now. It depends on one thing. Who are you? What is the meaning of your life? How do you relate to the others, to your substitute, to your children, to your employees? What are they for you? Do they have to become something for you, or are they just instruments in order to achieve with you certain things? If they are just instruments to achieve a goal, then this is not leadership at all. You have here in the United States also a very nice example. The very famous Darwin Smith, who was the former CEO of Kimberly Clark. You know, this company that we won 100 years was quite famous. It was producing coated paper for years, 100 years of corporate history. It was a famous company, a good company. And when Darwin Smith was appointed CEO of this organization in the beginning of the 70s, because he was a very, very magnanimous man, he looked at these people around and he saw in these people functionaries. He said, there is no creativity here. There is stagnation. I was born for something else. I was not born for that. Yes, I get $25,000 per, per year, per month. I have four kids to feed. I can feed them very well with that money. I can sit on a chair, get the money every month, make our organization go on. But I was not born for that. I was born for greatness. And you were born for greatness. We have to find a strategy that is going to change all this. All this. To achieve greatness or die. This was what he was saying to his people. Many of them were afraid. Many left. But he communicated this vision to these people very well. He pictured the vision with sounds and colors. And people, small-minded people said, that's great. We're going to change or they become great people. Let's follow that guy. He decided to sell everything. They sold off, do you remember? 100 years of corporate history, all the mills, all the mills. And they invested that money in another sphere of industry, in the consumer paper industry. Consumer paper, why? Because we have big competitors. The only way to become great is to be in the fire of competition. So let's go there where we have big competitors like 3M, Procter & Gamble, then they will oblige us to be great or to die. Let's go there, guys. And he went there. And after three years, this company had better results than 3M, Procter & Gamble. He was accused of being a terrorist, being a monster, being a criminal, Financial Times, Forbes, Forbes have to apologize for having said those things. He was a magnanimous soul. Magnanimous people are considered crazy by the small-minded. Small-mindedness sees craziness in magnanimity. But magnanimity is not craziness. What, why he did this, Smith? He did this because he was aware about a very important thing. The material results of an organization are secondary. In business, yes, you have to make money, profit. If not, no business. But this is not the aim of business. The aim of business is the aim of life. 
The aim of business is personal greatness and organizational greatness. If we achieve this, we've done the right thing as magnanimous people. If we achieved only material results, as leaders, we've done nothing. We are just good managers. Management is how to get things done. But management doesn't look at how, what, what happens to people in the process of getting things done. And many managers get things done by destroying the people inside the organization. And you know many examples. So the great thing of Smith is to have understood one very specific thing. In the end of the day, even if we collapse as an organization, I did not collapse and you did not collapse because in this process of fighting, of struggling, of becoming great, we have achieved our human goals which are self-transformation, growth, virtue, initiative, creativity, passion. And if, in the end of the day, we lose the battle, I will be, I will be, I will be happy, not because we lose the battle, but because you and I, we have become better. We have achieved greatness together. We're in the same fight. So these people who are magnanimous can take great risks, of course. And they very often, they take very big risks. For this very simple reason, it is because they understand that the most important thing is the process. The process. The process of self-transformation of human beings. This is what is important in leadership. And they are not idiots, because they know that when people are transformed when people get meaning in their work and in their lives. They work better. They are more creative. They do better things, greater things. And normally, the material results also are there, and the profit is there. So leaders focus on people. They don't think about the results, but they get incredible results. They make a lot of money in the business world. Great leaders normally make great money by, f by forgetting the money by focusing on human beings. That is the point I told you about Michelin. The point is people, focusing on people. Leadership is about people. Management is about things. I'm not saying here that you don't have to be a good manager in business. Smith was an incredible manager. But he was, first of all, a magnificent leader. Magnificent leader. Michelin was a great manager that he was, first of all, a magnificent leader. And that's why these people have achieved great things in life. Great things in terms of self-transformation and transformation of others. And big, I would say, great, huge material results. Kimberly Clark, Michelin, these are big companies in the world that have been transformed by certain people. Certain people that were great leaders, that understood what we're speaking about now, did great things because they had this magnanimous and humble vision of leadership. And when you've said this, there is something important that comes to your mind, a conclusion, which is you have to base your actions, of course, on prudence, justice, self-control, courage. But you cannot base your life on prudence, 
self-control, courage. These are two narrow things. These are not ideals. These are not life ideals. But you can base your life on magnanimity and humility, on greatness and service. These are ideals that inform the whole of your personality. I want to give you a simple example. A magnanimous person, he says, I am on the right path. Because you cannot be magnanimous if you are not prudent. And prudence is the capacity to identify, to make a distinction, first of all, between what's wrong and what's right. So if you have prudence, you can be magnanimous. So a magnanimous man or woman, he is prudent. But he's magnif magnanimously prudent. He says, I am on the right path. That's right. But for me, what's important is not so much to be on the right path than to do the great thing. And he will think in terms of greatness all the time. When he sees evil, he will not say, that's wrong. He will say, that's small. And when he sees small thing, he will say, that's wrong. For him, what is wrong is what is small. So he has a way of perceiving a reality that is not just right and wrong. You understand me? For him, everything is perceived through character. And a magnanimous character sees not right and wrong. He's on the right path. He knows it, but he forgot about that. He sees what's small and what's big. And he teaches his son and his children, his daughters, the same way. He will say to his child, don't do that. That's small. He will not say, don't do that. That's the wrong thing. He will say to his child, that's small. You're worth much better than that. And this is a great thing in education. The child understands it. That's not for me. That's small and big. I do the big thing. I do the great thing. The magnanimous people perceive reality in a very different way. It's the way of greatness and smallness. So when they see in evil, they don't see what is a specific evil of an action. They see the diminution, diminution that is included in evil. Diminution of humanity. Diminution of, of human dignity that is included in an evil action. He doesn't see, that, he doesn't see the, the wrong aspect of it. He sees the, the smallness of that action. It's an ideal of life. You perceive everything from this, with this filter, I would say. It's another vision of, your, of yourself, of the others, and of life. That's why we say that magnanimity is a real ideal, a life ideal. You can base your life on the concept of the notion and the ideal of greatness. Same thing with, with humility. Fraternal humility, service to the others, is something that informs the whole of your existence. I'm here to serve. I serve the others when I help them discover their talents, multiply it, and achieve greatness. This is the way I serve. And I do this, and I do this all the time. It is a light motive. It is the vision I have of myself and of the others. It is a life ideal. With this, we've said a very simple thing. It is that leadership is not, of course, a technique. It is not a simple spiritual exercise. It is a real life ideal. And everybody, in a way or another, is called to leadership. Everybody is called to greatness and service. So leadership, you see, it is much more 
than what we could, we could think. It's not about leading people. It's not about directing people. It's not about achieving together certain goals. Yeah. This is something else. Leadership is much more than that. Leadership is about becoming what we are, real human beings, achieving greatness, and serving the other people. But serving in a very concrete way, which is the way of teaching, the way of parenting, the way of helping people becoming what they really are. And this makes leadership very attractive. It's a very attractive science if you look at this from that point of view. And this is, in the end of the day, what virtuous leadership is. And a final thing before we enter into discussion. I tell you, when I teach in Russia already five years, and very often people come to me and tell me, look, Alex, my students at the University of Moscow, you say that, first of all, we discover greatness in our parents, parents that were leaders for us. This was for us a big example, a great example of greatness, magnanimity. When they challenged us, when they explained us who we are, they show us our virtues, our talents, our gifts, and they were expecting an answer to that. I don't know my father. My mother, I prefer not to speak about her. Why do you tell me about my parents? What do I tell these people? I tell them, okay, but you are still free to choose your friends. And your parents are not going to choose your friends for you. You are, you are free to choose your friends. You choose to, you're free to choose the magnanimous people you want to speak with, you want to be with. You choose, you, you're free to choose the people you want to learn from. You're free to choose to spend a lot of time with magnanimous people and less time with the small-minded or the pusillanimous ones. At that moment, students, my, my, my students begin to understand that nobody can say leadership is not for me. No one can say leadership is not for me. And I tell them something that I have experienced, which is that probably the most powerful leadership act in the life of an individual is when he recognizes, he acknowledges that there has not been leadership in his life or in her life. And he says, stop. Now I want leadership in my life. And I am ready to do everything you know, to develop in myself this leadership that I have not had from my parents, whatever it is, and I will make a metanoia, a conversion of my heart and my will and my mind, and I'm going to foster this in myself. And the greatest leaders that we see in life very often are those people, those who once became, became aware of the absolute lack of leadership in their lives. They have experienced it, and they know it, and they remember how it was. And they discover these signs of leadership, of virtuous leadership, and they say, now I change. Now I fight. Now I go in this direction. And very often they have the energy, the energy that stems from conversion, from metanoia. They got it, and they fight, and they become incredible leaders. It can be a religious conversion or something else, but something of the kind. It's always a conversion of the heart that brings people to this conclusion. So no one can say, I had those parents, so I cannot do great things in life. You're free to choose those people you want to spend time with. You're free to choose the books you want to read. 
and to spend time with the heroes and the leaders of those books. You're free to choose the music you want to listen. There is a certain kind of music that can help you raise the level of your soul. And there is a certain kind of music for the small-minded. There is. All of us, we have experienced it. You're free to choose those people you want to be with, or the books you want to read, the music you want to listen to. You choose to contemplate beauty. Aris Plato was used to say that the contemplation of beauty is that that gives you wings, wings to fly. He has a vision of magnanimity as being a very aesthetical, the most aesthetical of all the virtues. It has to do with the vision of beauty. You're free to develop your artistic mind in a way or another. Well, everybody has his own taste, I understand. <laughs> but we have to understand that beauty has a lot to do with magnanimity, a lot. Each of us has to investigate a little bit about that. When we see great movies where ethics and aesthetics fit together, converge, join each other, something happens in our souls, in our minds, in our hearts. Something strong. Everything depends here what is our answer to those values. If you give an answer to this great value of ethics and aesthetics, then you can transform your mind, transform your heart, and you can come to enter the heart of the big virtue of magnanimity. Many people ask me, okay, what about my talents? I have no idea. That's a big question. When you're young, don't be afraid. You don't know yourself. Only Mozart, at six years old, knew who he was. <laughs> Before 28, 30 years old, it's very difficult to know what is my talent. Why? Because you had not had enough time to investigate, to try things. You need time to try very different things and that people, so that people can tell you, this is you. Boy, this is great. This is what you have to do in life. No, you're not a speaker. You're a writer. You're not a businessman. You're a pianist. We have to try things in order to get to know ourselves well and to know what are our gifts, what are our talents. And we have to ask people, what are my talents? We have to find great friends, good friends, pious friends, virtuous friends, magnanimous friends that can help us discover what is this talent that we have and that we have to develop. And I tell you, don't worry, people at 20 or 16 years old come to me. What's my talent? I have no idea. This is awful. How can I become great? I don't even know who I am. So I stop, stop. Stop, you're 16. <laughs> you're 16. Wait 20 years and probably you will get to know yourself well and you will understand what is your mission in life on the foundation of the talent that you have but that you don't know your talents yet. It's not a problem. It's the law of nature. We have to investigate things. We have to try. We have to dare doing a lot of things. Magnanimity has a lot to do with daring, the capacity not to be afraid of your own mistakes. A lot of people are afraid of mistakes. And magnanimity tells you, don't be afraid of mistakes. Do a lot of things, and we learn from those things, and you will understand at the end of the day what is your talent. Maria Callas, 1949, Italy. That woman was singing Wagner in the opera. And she thought she was good at that. She thought, that was my life. Wagner, Brunhilde, that's me. I become great singing those things. And one day, uh, a woman there was singing uh, Bellini, 
i puritani, felt ill. The chief of the theater, Maestro Serafim, told her, Maria, he's ill. Margarita Caruso is ill. You have to replace her. Callas told her, told him, are you crazy? The relationship between Wagner and Bellini is like Leonard Cohen and the Beatles. I mean, or Tchaikovsky and, I don't know, and Mozart. There is a little thing in common. And then this guy told her, I know you. I know you well. You've been working here for two years. I know you can do it. You can do it. You have to try. It will go good. It will be good, good, good. She trusted him. But what she was doing that day was an incredible act of daring. He was speaking about her whole career as a singer for her. She, was, she, was, she would have been able to collapse completely. But that very day she sung in Bellini, in Puritani. Everybody understood that very night that she had to stop singing Wagner. And she had to sing Colorado Soprano, Bellini, and that stuff. This is her. Great singer, beautiful actor. She changed completely all the art of the opera. Before her, people were just singing and paying attention to the voice. With Callas, not only the voice, but the acting. She was a real actor. She was incarnating the people she was representing in her, in her opera. She changed the whole art of the opera. And all the singers after Callas say, without Callas, we would not exist. She opened that door that nobody dared open before her. Great interpretations, great music, great voice, and great acting. A new kind of opera, new lyrics are becoming, uh, be uh, came to life with Maria Callas through a very simple act, but a very daring act. She dared, she trusted the maestro. So daring is very important. Not afraid of making mistakes. Not afraid of making mistakes. Peter Drucker, the founder of the Science of Management, used to say, I would never appoint chief of a big organization someone that has never made big mistakes in life. Because this means that this man or that woman is a mediocrity. When you do nothing, you never make mistakes. When you do great things, you make mistakes. But in the end of the day, you do great things. And a leader has to be a man or woman that is capable of taking risks in order to do great things. If not, he cannot be the chief of a big organization whose vocation is to help people develop, be creative, change the organization, change the world for the better. But I can speak 10 hours like this. I would like to stop, and I would like to hear you, and I would like you to put your questions, and I would like to answer those questions if I can. <laughs>